Just a comment before we start. Uh, Dharma talks are usually solo affairs, but tonight you get a double act. <laughs> He's starting first. Could we uh, thought we <clears throat> address the topic of mindfulness, attention, awareness for, for tonight's talk? Since this uh, is of primary interest, uh, these are terms that are much branded about and uh, we both spend in our own ways much time not just practicing this stuff but actually also trying to help other people practice this and some of uh, theoretical considerations sometimes help despite the bad press theories get. Um, sometimes it actually helps orienting the mind or making necessary or useful uh, differences. It may surprise you that um, attention is not really a Buddhist concept. Uh, the Western philosophy is full of the stuff, if you know where to look. There's a beautiful um, little observation in Aristotle's, um, I think it's the Nicomachean Ethics, where he says, sometimes you spend your attention on something that is right in front of your nose, and you're very focused on it, and then a loud sound takes place and that sound pulls what is right in front of your nose away so that you are no longer aware of it. I find this is a telling little acknowledgement in, uh, and the psychotherapist part in me sees in that probably an explanation why children get screamed at if they don't listen. Yeah? It's very difficult to hold your attention on what you're currently doing if somebody screams at you. Simple, because there's part of our physiological organism that responds to loudness. This is an, an alarm signal, and this pr produces an involuntary response in us. In other words, our involuntary attention goes to the source, or to the deemed source of that noise. Say, uh, uh, an enraged parent, for example, that uh, may take you out of your, what looks to you, harmless play. Yeah. So attention is acknowledged in Western uh, history of mind and more recently in Western psychology um, very early on. In fact, 1890, William James, one of the fathers of psychology, devotes a whole chapter on at attention in his now famous book. And he writes a couple of very interesting things in there. If one reads them from a Buddhist point of view, they're highly uh, um, perspicuous and uh, very visionary in some way. He says it's very necessary. You know, the man with attention is basically a happy man. The man who will have lots of attention will find a lots of ingenious ways of uh, making a contribution to humanity. And then he says a few other clever things like that the act of attention actually means you have to retreat your 
attention from possible other objects. So to better give your attention to a small number or possibly only one object and that the more you give to that one, the more you have actually voluntarily to retrieve your attention from many other things. Which I think is quite uh, something we, after a day of practice, we can uh, probably corroborate from personal experience. But then he continues and says, it would be very desirable to have lots of attention and to have teachers address the topic of attention, especially in education. But he also assumes that attention is basically a given. Yeah? You either have lots of it or you have little of it. And that's where I think the Indian traditions come in, in some way, and make a huge contribution. Because in their teachings, and there are many yogic teachings and Buddhist traditions who, from different vantage points, address the topic, say very boldly that attention can be trained. Attention is a virtue. And the kick about virtues is they can be affirmed, they can be seen in others, they can be strengthened, and developed. Yeah. What makes a virtue a virtue is the fact that you can train in something. Yeah. So the very encouraging message is that attention is not just, you know, you're either born with it, with a lot of it or with a little of it, but uh, Indian traditions across the board, and they're quite happy to disagree with each other, just in case you had any doubt. They, they happily disagree on many, many other points, but on this point they completely agree that Attention can be trained. So, how does it look if attention is untrained? That's simple. Untrained attention just goes wherever the loudest wheel squeaks. Yeah? So, something, a sound, that's where your attention goes. You smell that the onions are roasted in the kitchen. Mm, okay, we're close to meal time. She sniffles on the in the back row. Your attention goes there. Then you have a knee pain. Then your stomach is rumbling. Then you remember your last holidays. Your attention goes to all those respective points. Yeah. You, with every time you have a kind of vitalization experience, but actually it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. It's like sitting in front of your computer. You want to check your bank account, and then you read the news before that. You follow a link, and you know, 15 minutes later, you've bought a pair of blue socks, <laughs> and, and your bank account is still unchecked. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the type of attention which we call basically untrained attention. It's, it's following the respectively strongest impulse and just goes anywhere where this attention is called. It's completely and purely involuntary attention. The next stage is we, we, we actually have decided to focus this attention on a particular process or on an object and to stay with that. And the attention is being pulled off left and right. You know, we're trying to be with something, to follow a thought or listen to somebody whom we like to listen to in a noisy environment, or we're tired and we're trying to get something finished, or we're meditating and trying to stay with the breath, but our attention gets pulled off left <coughs> and right, and it's kind of like riding on a tiger. You know? And we keep coming back, get pulled off again, keep coming back. 
So this is the second stage. The next stage would be something like our attention has now become fluid enough to be able to stay with with something we have chosen. There is still distractions going on. There are still other things going on which we are quite aware of. You know, at the at the margins of our peripheral attention, we still have movement. We have things that want to come in, but it's relatively possible to stay with what we have chosen. I am quite confident that we all know this state. I'm not speaking of a lofty spiritual realization. Anytime you are focusing on a piece of work or something you may enjoy doing or you feel absorbed in doing, you will have that quality of mind. So there are possible distractions, but the primary object of your focal, uh, attentional focus stays, yeah, and you stay on this. That is where we start speaking of, um, that's where we may start speaking of mindfulness, you know, when that attention becomes fluid. Mindfulness has a few other factors, which John will tell you in a moment, probably. <laughs> but one of its factors is fluidity, yeah, and a certain ease of staying with things. The next stage would be, you know, our attention is spacious and stable enough that objects and processes can arise in it and can disappear without our attention or without, by now, our mindfulness collapsing. Attention is stable enough, spacious enough. It's a kind of a field type of attention in which things arise and disappear and we can be highly aware of, but our attention doesn't shrivel down to the size of the object that arises in the field of attention. So uh, after that, it gets very, very interesting. But these four stages, I'd like you to kind of ponder them for a moment. And I'm sure John has a few things to add or to disagree. I'm going to extend the discourse a little bit because what we're really talking about here and the importance of attention, well, the first thing to say about attention is unlike the kind of Aristotelian idea that there's an allotted amount of attention that goes around and somebody gets a very little, somebody gets a lot. Actually, attention is something that arises with every moment in consciousness. It's always there in the Buddhist traditions, in Buddhist psychology, we always have attention. Attention is is what's called a universal factor. It arises with every moment of consciousness. So it can be trained. The short story is exactly what Akinchino is saying, that we can train it. And that training actually is part of what we do in so-called meditation, because um, one of the things I'd like to say is that actually we're not meditating. This is a terrible English word that gets lumped onto a Sanskrit Pali word, which is bhavana. First Pali word I've used a whole weekend. (laughs) I've been terribly good. I've been biting my tongue. (laughs) I'll make a scratch here. Get demerit for that. Um, but this particular word I really do want to emphasize because this word, which is usually this word bhavana, really means to develop or to cultivate something. And what we normally think of as meditation is a strange word in English, it has its roots in Latin, which I won't go into. 
um, but it's not really what's specifically meant in this, in this instance, because what we're actually doing, and the sort of thing that uh, Kinchino is describing, is we're actually beginning to develop or to cultivate a particular type of attention. Yeah, an attention which is flexible and fluid and able to move mm. from object to object. Yeah. Um, and it's not fixated. That's the other thing. It's not fixated on any particular object. In other words, it's an open, spacious field of attention where I can be attentive to all kinds of things arising but without being fixated on any one thing in that particular field. And this doesn't come easily. There is the kind of attention, that um, almost involuntary attention, leaping around that Kinchino was describing, and there's this very, very particular type of attention which is associated with mindfulness. In fact, I'm kind of trying to sort of think up of a definition of what we're talking about here, which is actually mindfulness is, in a way, the intention to pay attention in a particular way. Yeah. Intention to, to pay, pay attention in a particular way. Yes. Yeah, good. <laughs> I, like, I, like, I like that. <laughs> okay, now I have the seal of approval. I can move on. <laughs> so we have this particular way of paying attention, which is um, really which is what qualifies what we're calling mindfulness. Again, which is not a terribly useful translation, it's the one we're kind of stuck with because it's such a part of um, contemporary discourse at the moment, uh, the discourse of mindfulness, but this particular type of attention is the ability to recollect what is going on in the present moment. And this is an important dimension of it. Again, it goes back into Pali Sanskrit terms, but part of the definition of this is the ability to recollect or remember what is actually going on in the present moment. And so this is a present moment awareness or a present moment recollection which is going on. You know, so think of some of the instructions that have been given today so far, you know, not to get caught up in the past, not to get caught up in the future, um, but to actually to remain present with what is arising. This is the basic attentional training of mindfulness. Now we can do this in what I call a much more concentrated fashion, which is much more focused, or we can do it in a wider sense, yeah, where we actually open the awareness and the attention becomes much, much greater, in a sense, of the ability to look at whatever is arising. So we go from a narrow focus to a wider focus. A narrow focus is part of the training. Huh. Yeah. And this is usually termed concentration. I don't particularly like that term, and I would term it focusing. The ability to be able to focus the mind. This is actually vitally important in anything that we're doing. Our minds, as you probably gather, particularly if you're new to this whole procedure, our minds are pretty chaotic. There's an awful lot of going on. You know, remember the quote I gave you this morning, welcome to the madhouse. You know, you know, close your eyes, sit down, and welcome to the madhouse. Well, actually, that is a chaos that's going on in our minds. However, when we begin to train to become attentive to what's going on, train our attention um, to become sensitized to what's going on, we see that, of course, there are patterns in this. And 
the story in a way that I want to develop after handing over to Akinshita again is where do we go from there? What is the purpose of this mindfulness? You know, we're stuck with that word, as I say. What is the purpose of this mindfulness in our daily lives? What is, what is it for? I mean, this is all, I'm quite a pragmatist here. This is my question. What is it for? What are we trying to do? What are we trying to, where are we trying to get with these procedures? And I'll come back to this after handing it over to Akinshita again for mm. a few minutes. I'd like to spend a moment on that uh, mindfulness. It is a, um, you know, it is a strange thing when a term that has been um, a technical term in a particular branch of learning goes uh, goes, lar- goes at large, you know. Um, suddenly, the precision of that technical term is lost because everybody is using the term and the original field in which this was a technical term where everybody more or less understood the context and maybe even some of the definition, all this is lost. What is left is uh, a now mainstream term without its technical specificity. So this has happened with many other terms. Yoga is one of these terms. Vipassana is one of these terms. Mindfulness is now, it's now the mindfulness turn. So um, many people will use that term, not necessarily referring it back to the context out of which it arises. Um, I think one of the ways of thinking of this in, in I believe, helpful ways is to just think of full presence of mind. There are a couple of facets of mindfulness, which John has alluded already to some of them, um, which are not necessarily very obvious. Mindfulness is a term that is quite refractory to standard psychological definitions. Uh, And if we manage to break it down to a sort of a a one-line definition, then generally most of mindfulness is lost. So that is one of the what is one of the paradoxes, the, the, the better known the word gets, in some way, uh, the flatter it seems to uh, become in that process. So one of the aspects John has referred to, uh, mindfulness is capable, is recalling what has been lost. Yeah? Remember, if you, with your breath, and then you think of something, and then you think a little more, and then a little later you, you hear a sound, somebody is coughing, and then that sound makes you aware that you were actually lost in thought. And then you remember where you left off from. You remember, oh, yeah, there was a IMS, meditation, retreat, <laughs> breath, right, right, there was something. In it. Now, that is the beginning of mindfulness, the capacity to recall what has been lost or left behind. This is already a, a facet of mindfulness. Yeah. So it is capable of recalling what we have started off with. So there is a, a little bit of that recall, as in the word recollection is in there. Another aspect of that mindfulness is, John has also spoken about it, it's the capacity to stabilize. It's the capacity to actually not get lost. I, I am less tolerant with the word concentration. My, uh, my image for concentration is always that of wringing out one of these floor cloths, you know, with concentric movements, kind of squeezing. Uh, 
And that has never been particularly attractive or inspiring to me, that notion. So concentration doesn't really do much for me. It sounds uh, sweat-inducing, muscular, painful, and at the end you have red hands. So I like to speak of a stability or yeah, focus or calm, the capacity to stay calm with something. The stillness of the mind's focus resting on one aspect of experience. I completely agree with John about the indispensability of this. There is no venture, nothing, no undertaking in our lives that we could bring to success if we don't have a modicum of that faculty of holding what we have chosen to hold in focus, in continual focus, even when other things are interesting or trying to interrupt. Now another feature of that mindfulness is that it creates space. Mindfulness has a capacity to envelop things. Yeah? It's not flat. It seems to reach around something. Yeah? It creates that space. John has used the term feel, but I, I often use that. I make a distinction between an awareness that is object awareness and awareness that is a field awareness. Yeah? So mindfulness has a focus and it also has a periphery. Yeah? And if we put the accent on the peripheral part, it creates space. Psychologically, that's very important. If we bring mindfulness to a knotted pain in our shoulder, then usually that experience of a knotted and constricted pain in our shoulder becomes more bearable because we experience something like a bit more space in this. It seems to make the, the body of resonance in which we experience that knotted pain a bit bigger. Yeah. We do that with children, for example. If you have a little child who is sad, you let it come to you, you take it, you press it against yourself, you allow the child to reverberate with your body and with your psychological system so that the child's emotion has a bigger body of resonance and that the child generally experiences that as relief. It experiences it as validation. Ah, and it experiences as relief because suddenly the emotion that inhabits the kid has more space and the pressure drops. Yeah? We, I'm sure many of you do that spontaneously with friends, particularly with kids, it's very obvious. And something of that sort happens when we pay voluntarily, when we grant our mindfulness to areas often that are constricted or are painful. That's why mindfulness is so effective when dealing with painful things. Once we have overcome our natural tendency to go away from things that are unpleasant, and that's quite a bit of training because we're asking you perfectly counterintuitive things, namely when things are painful not to go away, not to distract, not to deflect. But if we are managed to actually hold our mindful attention on something that is happening and it may not be pleasant, we generally experience a deeper connection with that and we generally experience some form of relief. Sometimes this is bodily, Sometimes this is emotional, sometimes this is even perceptual. Back to you, John. Mm -hmm. 
I want to come back to the word that we used about um, the, one of the qualities of mindfulness, that it recollects, that it remembers. And actually, it's one of the few words in English I think it works quite well, because if you think about it, um, we might start off with the breath, and then the mind will drift away. It will go off into thought. It will go off into thinking about the past, thinking about the future. And what mindfulness does, of course, is it brings us back. Yeah. The mindfulness, by the way, as I was trying to indicate in some of the instructions we're given today, the mindfulness is there immediately. We realize that we're no longer with the breath. Yeah. So when we've drifted away, it's not a problem. It's when we realize that we have drifted away, where whatever it is to, whether it be a thought, whether it be a sound, um, whether it be a strong emotion or whatever, the moment I realize that actually I have drifted, um, then... I'm back with mindfulness again. Now, what is going on there? What is going on is actually the ability of the mind to move from scatteredness and fragmentation into a degree of collectedness yet again. So it's gone from this, this narrow focus, perhaps on the breath, resting on the breath, with a wider awareness perhaps than I'm indicating with my hand gestures here, but it moves gradually as we you know, drift, as thoughts and daydreams and emotions and feelings and sounds start to impinge on us. It starts to widen and it starts to scatter and it starts to fragment. And the whole purpose of mindfulness in this, as recollection, is it recollects. It brings it back from that scatteredness, that fragmentation, back into some degree of wholeness, albeit that it only lasts a few minutes a few seconds sometimes, if you're lucky, yeah. until it scatters again, and then we bring it back again. So actually the process of the development, the cultivation, the growing of mindfulness, to use actually one of the roots of this word that I've at least given you today, bhavana, is, is to grow that awareness so that we move backwards and forwards between the scatteredness and this collectedness, the scatteredness and the collectedness. And actually, this is the process. This is almost a dialectical process between the two elements, between this fragmentation and this ability to bring it back to some degree of wholeness. We learn a lot in this process. We learn the patterns of the mind. Mindfulness is not, in some senses, opposed to or against, actually, where it drifts to. This is the part of the getting to know yourself part of getting to know what your processes are. We live normally in an unawareness of the processes, so much so that they often catch us out again and again and again. Yeah? Part of the intention is to actually begin to discern wholesome patterns and unwholesome patterns of mind. With the, obviously, the other intention, the secondary intention of begin, beginning to cultivate those wholesome states of mind that I discover, if you like, in my journeying, as I journey away from my, my anchor point, the breath or whatever it is we might use an object. The breath is obviously the most common object. So we drift and we come back. But in that drifting, we actually gain some insight. And I'm not again talking about vast mystical experiences just the ability to start to palpate in some senses, to feel, to touch 
some of those states which actually are unbeknown to us a lot of the time. They actually have their effects in our daily behavior, our effect, their effects in our speech and in our relationships and all of the things we do, but they are in a sense a dark continent you know, for many of us. We don't really know them as such. This particular way of beginning to bring attention, to begin to bring focus, um, but also to have this field of awareness in our lives also helps us to understand some of these things which catches out in our ordinary lives. So this is partly why, and it's only a partial answer to why is this important? Why do we engage in this? Why is mindfulness such a major part? And you know, it's not the only strategy, but it's one of the major strategies that the Buddha gives us to wake up to beginning to wake up. And remember, this is a word that's much, much, you know, or a phrase which is much to be preferred to enlightened. What we're attempting to do is wake up, and mindfulness is an intrinsic part of that waking up process. Without it, we, we still continue to be somnambulists, you know, sleepwalkers. You know. And as sleepwalkers, what we do is we keep walking into the same lamppost. <laughs> Yeah, and then we wake up in the morning and wonder why we've got bruises. <laughs> yeah. So this is part of the waking up process. This beginning to open up our field of awareness and actually have the ability to focus the mind at the same time. The Buddha, I think, was a pragmatist. Um, he he realised that... Um, the reason why we behave in ways that create pain for ourselves and for others is due not to an intrinsic malevolence of our nature, but it is due to uh, an empirical error. We, we do not understand what actually take, takes place. We do not understand our own needs, and we often do not understand what we actually look for. And there is, for people who are living in a misunderstanding, you know, it's no point in blaming them or it's no point in uh, telling them what's, what's true. Uh, if people live in a perpetual state of misunderstanding, the only really compassionate thing to do with them is try to give them the tools to figure out how to get it right. Yeah. So rather than tell what they should do, he encouraged faculties which he felt were already uh, dormant in our system and which need to be strengthened. And when, they, when strengthened, these faculties would help us to come to a more realistic assessment of what's actually happening. In other words, he thought the major problem is ignorance. The major problem is not truly understanding what actually happens and how we contribute to that what we complain about. Um, and the, his response to this was trying to suggest and uh, encourage forms of training that make it less likely that we succumb to ignorant forms of understanding, that the less likely succumb to errors in our perception, in our responses, 
and in our actions. So he realized that one of the reasons how ignorance comes about is not just so through um, you know, stupidity or through lack of information, but it comes about through uh, inability to actually find truth, the inability to find what's real. Not so much truth with a capital T, but to find what is real. And if you have people who, um, who don't see well and who, whose senses don't work well and who cannot pay attention properly, you may help them to steady the faculties they have, yeah, to make out of the information they have access to better conclusions. Yeah. So he suggested that one way to counteract ignorance and blindness is to pay closer attention to what actually happens. That's the reason why we <coughs> meditators are meditators. Yeah. Because by meditation, our chances to truly come into a realistic relationship with our own needs, with our wishes and longings, and with the process of experience is wildly improved. Yeah? Simply by being able to pay attention in a continuous form, to pay attention in a methodical form, to pay attention even when things are beckoning left and right. Yeah? So we don't lose our head. If a nice pretty face comes, we don't lose our head. And if an ugly, uh, wrathful face comes, we don't lose our head. He felt that if we establish a capacity of staying present with as much of ourselves and as much of our wishes and as much of our knowledge as possible, then we would understand better. He was also quite convinced that human beings are only acting in greed and in hatred on the basis of a misunderstanding. He assumed that human beings are basically decent and they want to be happy. And only under the influence of ignorance would they believe that by being greedy or by being angry they have better chances at happiness. Yeah. So the pragmatic steps he took was basically rather than preaching about the perniciousness of ignorance or the perniciousness of greed and hatred, he said, well, learn how to pay more closely attention and you will realize that what you're trying to do it's understandable, but it doesn't work. Yeah. If you want to be happy, you have to find out ways to make this work. Yeah. This is a very fascinating and, I believe, empowering statement. I know nothing as inspiring as this statement in that two and a half thousand year old teaching that says, if you pay in appropriate ways attention to your own process of experiencing things, then therein you will find the key to your happiness, to contentment and to true understanding. Yeah. This is a very powerful statement. So that is why the whole emphasis on what John has already named as bhavana, which can be translated as development, uh, plays such a major role and has basically given rise to practical tools in developing stillness, insight, mindfulness, and a few other things. Back to you, John. Okay, I want to, in a sense, parse a little what uh, Akinshana has already said, because rather than ignorance, I would actually use the word confusion. But uh, ignorance mm. is a very strong, hard word. 
in many ways. It's actually a, a pretty good translation of the, the original Pali word. But in many senses, our felt experience is not one of ignorance. Our felt experience mm. is one of confusion. You know, we're in a world, and actually, um, we're seemingly quite ill-equipped to deal with this world. Um, the German philosopher Heidegger uh, had a wonderful phrase. He said, we were thrown into this world. Yeah, it's a lovely expression. We're just thrown in there, and we find ourselves in a world trying to sort out how we go on. Yeah, this, is, this is our existential confusion. You know, it's like landing in a foreign country and going, <laughs> you know, I don't even speak the language, let alone, let alone anything else, and find my way around that. Well, actually, this foreign country, of course, is life yeah, in many ways. Uh, most of us are pretty ill-equipped to do that. And so, actually, the outcomes of this confusion happen to be acquisition, greed, yeah, in all its various forms. Acquisition is one part of it. It's the most obvious part of it, particularly in our societies. Yeah. Appropriation, yeah. yeah. Appropriation. And also, we have you know, greed and aversion. You know, the things we don't like, the things we don't want to happen to us. And actually, there's a huge spectrum of aversion. Um, aversion often gets translated as hatred, but it's not that. It it's, can be hatred. It can be mild irritation. Hmm. Yeah. The irritation that actually seems to beset a lot of people in ordinary life. You know? They might not be you know, hating and they might not be angry all the time, but there's a kind of minor sort of tremor of irritation that runs through. Um, a bit like sort of being rubbed with sandpaper. <laughs> Here. So there's an irritation, a kind of fractiousness that often is there in life. And these two elements, when they are arising out of the confusion, actually what we're doing is actually exacerbating them because the confusion itself exacerbates the whole problem. We don't really, really understand why we, in some senses, suffer, why we have pain, why we have distress, why we have all the confusion that we do have in our ordinary lives. And I don't want to overstate the case, but there's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of distress from the high level to the minor level in ordinary life. And what we seem to do in this situation, because we don't understand, because we don't actually stand near, in some senses, to the root sources of this confusion, the root sources or their outcomes, is we, in a way, continue to pour petrol on a fire, you know, hoping to put the fire out with petrol. You know. So we get locked into this vicious cycle. The Buddha's vision, really, is that by actually beginning to discern very clearly the what is going on, to get very, you know, to see this in, with a clarity of vision, I think, which is denied us normally, then we can begin to bring about a cessation of this constant fueling of the fire that we're engaged in. Yeah. Now, part of that strategy is through the mindfulness strategy the beginning to open up to the what is happening. Yeah. The waking up process um, that the Buddha speaks about is not waking up to what I want to be, what I might fantasize about, how I would like things to be, but actually waking up to how they are. Yeah. 
Now, most of us, I think, operate under some kind of delusions, illusions about how we would like the world to be, how we would like our lives to be, and actually there's usually a huge mismatch between how we experience it and actually how, um, you know, how we would want it to be. Yeah. There is a pragmatism in this teaching and there is also a realism in this teaching. The realism is actually beginning to learn to live with the way things happen to you in your life. We can't always avoid the unpleasant if you haven't noticed already. <laughs> you know, we cannot run away from illness. You know, we can deal with it, we can try to live healthily, we can try to stave it off. But ultimately, that's not under our control. You know, we can only do so much. And there's one facet, of course, that we can never, never stave off, um, which is death. Yeah. This is one thing that we cannot avoid. Um, we're not going to escape it. And so the Buddha is giving us very, very pragmatic strategies, very realistic strategies of dealing with some of the basic existential facts of our existence, the things that we cannot avoid. And in helping us to deal with those, he also helps us to deal with, through the practice of mindfulness and giving us clarity about what's going on, is all the minor things and the bigger things, the tragedies, the losses, the changes, all of the things that take place in our lives over which we have very little, if no control whatsoever. Yeah. Mindfulness is opening us up onto that field by initially, I think, getting us to deal with the little things that are arising in our minds, arising in our bodies. Yeah. Getting us to literally, to again, phrases I think both of us have used at some point today, to stand close to our experience. To turn towards our experience, not run away from it or get inveigled in it. Mm. Yeah. To actually begin to see it with a degree of clarity that perhaps we've never seen before. Yeah. And if nothing else, the ability not to be swayed. This is the basic training in something I've been talking about over the last week um, in another retreat. This is the basic training in a degree of equilibrium, what we might call a degree of equanimity about life. Yeah. To become equanimous is not to become disengaged. To become equanimous is to be engaged, but not to be thrown off balanced continuously by the what is happening to us. Mindfulness starts to give us the basic training in that. But mindfulness is a very, very nuanced term, and I'm aware that we're running out of time already this evening. It's a highly nuanced term with many, many different meanings. And I think the only part of the meaning of mindfulness we've spoken about this evening so far is what I would term simple awareness. Yeah. Simply becoming aware of what is going on. So we move from a position of not knowing into a, a greater sense of knowing. Yeah. That greater sense of knowing, of course, is the perfect antidote to some of the confusion which, which we dwell in at this moment in time. Yes, I just briefly want to say I would like to emphasize a piece John has just mentioned, namely that equanimity as a relational quality. Yeah. Equanimity does not mean I can't be bothered. It does not mean it's none of my business. It is something that in Buddhist teaching is understood as a, qual 
one of the aspects of universal empathy. Yeah. So although we're no longer thrown off balance, we're still in relationship, we're still connected. I guess I just like to stress that. Then I would like to give three small examples in, in how practically just the ability to choose how and where we pay attention to can help us with difficult stuff. On a very simple level, if we have a choice, if we have established a choice and acknowledged that attention is something we give, we grant, we bestow, that it can be directed and it can be pointed at things or it can be offered to things, then when unpleasant things happen, it is possible for us to choose something, another aspect of that unpleasant thing. To give you a clear example, if you have an unpleasant, angry thought in your head and you have learned to make a choice where to direct your attention, then you have a possibility of actually, instead of continuing to think angry thoughts that make you only more angry and digging up angry memories in which you were equally angry as you are now, uh, instead of doing that, you have the choice to go to the unpleasant feeling in the pit of your stomach that is connected with your anger and you stay there. And that anger will not be fed. It will still be unpleasant, it will still be there, but instead of feeding it with memories and thoughts and fantasies and uh, angry tirades in your head which only make you more angry and more helpless, instead of doing that you stay for 80 seconds with an unpleasant burning sensation in the pit of your stomach. And you will notice it wanes. It may not disappear as quickly as you wish, but it is definitely not being fed and it's not going to flood you any longer. Yeah? So the decision and the, to choose something which at face value is unpleasant, to make that an object of your attention and to have the strength by the virtue of your training in holding attention on something steadily may make it possible that instead of going into a six-hour hate fantasy about you, yourself or about the people, it's always the people whom you love and who are close, you kind of go in hate fantasies generally. Um, instead of doing that, you spend 80 seconds on an unpleasant feeling fairly un impersonal unpleasant feeling somewhere underneath your, yeah, in your belly somewhere, and it may have abated. Yeah. So that would be one strategy in which the simple shift of object of your attention or the shift of facet uh, helps you. Another way would be if you, instead of reacting against something that you don't like, you're actually willing to be with that. Instead of following the habit, and maybe this is a quite a well-established habit, to go away from things unliked and unpleasant, if you manage to not do that, you will notice that what is unpleasant actually may transform. A, it may be yielding insights, and it may actually, and in the benevolent effect of your gentle mindfulness may actually change, it may shift, it may resolve itself, it may transform into something insightful, it may become more bearable. So by changing your attitude, 
Yeah? The first one was changing the object, the second one was changing the attitude. There's a third direct benefit of having some mindfulness uh, experience. This is, you may change the big picture. You may acknowledge meeting something unpleasant that actually your expectations were not accurate. You know, you were expecting too, too much. There is something fundamentally uninformed. We believe that other people die, but we won't. We know that we will, but we, still we behave as if we wouldn't. Yeah? We know a lawful lot of stuff about loss and about illness, and yet when it happens to us, we still behave as if it, it was an outrageous injustice. And mindfulness may help us to actually acknowledge that the things we fear and the things we feel so indignant about if they happen to us, they are happening to everybody. You know, this is not a personal insult to my narcissistic grandiosity. This is just a universal feature of human life that things fade or that they are taken away or that I lose the appetite after a while, even if I keep getting it. Yeah. So I may actually experience a widening of my picture of what's happening to me. Because I acknowledge this is not just happening to me as a personal insult and slight. But this is part of an existential given in which I am partaking because I've become a human being. In all three dimensions, mindfulness is directly capable of helping us shift our perspective. We're running out of time, so I'm just going to make a couple of final comments here. One of the things is mindfulness is, in a sense, in the ways perhaps even we've talked about it this evening, is the beginning, it's not an end. Because in the way, the, the end result of mindfulness is a greater connectedness to others in particular. It leads directly onto the other major element of the Buddha's teaching, which is the element of ethics. Yeah. Meditational practices do not occur in a vacuum. They occur in a framework where, for example, the choice that Akinchino mentioned, the ability to um, start to discern states of mind and to be given a choice about how we deal with certain things, well, the choice that the Buddha actually is encouraging us to make is the choice towards wholesome states of mind and wholesome activities rather than to dwell and to... Um, that steep ourselves in the unwholesome. Yeah? So instead of greed and anger, um, all of these negative emotions that arise out of these particular roots, we start to look at things like being more generous, being friendlier, being kinder in this life, starting to care more. Uh, and this is also a direct outcome. So mindfulness isn't something that simply takes place on the cushion. So mindfulness is something that spreads out. Mindfulness is for life. Yeah. It's not just for, you know, nice feelings on the cushion. Um, not that there's always nice feelings arising. <laughs> but it's uh, something that spreads out, necessarily spreads out into life. And ultimately the goal of this is something the Buddha speaks about. He says, my teaching has one taste, and that taste is freedom. However, we might, in our own particular way in the Western world, misinterpret that because often we interpret freedom as being the freedom to, 
the freedom to do this and the freedom to do that and the freedom to do anything we want to. And that is not what the Buddha is talking about whatsoever. When he, the Buddha speaks about freedom, he's speaking about the freedom from. He's speaking particularly about the freedom from the tyranny of greed, aversion and delusion. Greed, aversion and confusion. All of the things that arise out of that tyranny, particularly the habitual reactive responses, which are also familiar to or every one of us. None of us have to reflect, I don't think, very, very far to see, for example, um, you know, the situations where you know, somebody might press all of our buttons and there we are reacting. You know, usually somebody who's close to you who knows you well because they can really get you going quite quickly. Yeah. Yeah. This is what the freedom from is about. And one of the major strategies, as I say, is mindfulness um, to actually affect that change, to affect the change of being bound to, tied up with, yoked to, unwholesome, unpleasant, and ultimately self-destructive forms of behavior. I just want to perhaps finish on a quote. Yeah. This is a quote that comes from one of the texts, one of the ancient texts, one of these two-and-a-half-thousand-year-old texts. And the Buddha, again, I think is making it very clear here that the mindfulness which we've been speaking about is not just for ourselves. He said, looking after oneself, one looks after others. Looking after others, one looks after oneself. How does one look after others by looking after oneself? By practicing mindfulness, developing it, and making it grow. How does one look after oneself? By looking after others. By patience, by non-harming, by friendliness, and caring. Okay, thank you for your attention. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.